What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? Hi everybody, welcome to the show. This will be the third and final episode of our series about disaster films. We'll be looking at the basic conventions of disaster film, revisiting the common themes, and discussing why these stories are so important. Let's start with what we've discovered so far. A disaster film tends to be about a natural disaster, with the occasional alien invasion thrown in. Since aliens tend to be living creatures, in movies anyway, they count as natural disasters by way of trashing the place to get at our resources. Jerks. But whether the disaster is extraterrestrial or plain old terrestrial, if it's quote natural, then it's in the realm of Mother Nature, Mother Earth, under the auspices of the Mother Goddess, a.k.a. the female or feminine divine. So we've got this major character, Mother Nature, the female divine, that's represented in the films through the female characters. In contrast, we have Mother Nature's nemesis, the toxic masculine, given to selfishness, domination, hubris, and control depicted through phallic imagery like tall and lonely skyscrapers, grand projects built without regard to humanity, and arrogant, blustery men who imagine they have the upper hand over the earth because they built a dam. It's not about men or masculinity in general. In fact, a major theme of disaster film is creating positive masculinity, and in modeling a harmonious balance of masculine and feminine for everyone's benefit. The best image I can think of to illustrate this dichotomy comes from a movie that isn't a disaster film at all, 1997's Titanic. When the Titanic is struck by the iceberg and starts to take on water, Mr. Ismay looks absolutely perplexed. He says in a very blustery manner, This ship can't sink. Mr. Andrews, a very non-blustery sort of man, who had built the ship, but did not define himself by its success or failure, reminds Mr. Ismay, she's made of iron, sir. I assure you she can. Disaster films, basically, are trying to remind us that Mother Nature holds all the cards, no matter what we build. That even the grandest projects can fall down. That arrogant, selfish men like San Andreas's Daniel can be crushed underneath tons of shipping containers and that people should try to live in harmony with nature and be more like Mr. Andrews. Mr. Ismay? Blustery, delusional, vilified by the audience. Don't be like Mr. Ismay. Be like Mr. Andrews. So why isn't Titanic considered a disaster movie? Mostly because it's based on the true story. 
disaster films as a genre are using social themes to guide the characters and the audience. A true story is fairly limited, both in theme and characters, to what actually happened. But for the purposes of understanding the female divine versus the hyperphallic masculine that we referred to earlier as Big Dick Energy, the comparison of Mr. Ismay's character and Mr. Andrew's character is dead on. What else have we discovered? We learned how women characters, as representatives of Mother Earth, are cast in the role of observer of the hero's choices and assessor of their worthiness. They're the communicators. More to the point, they control communication, both directly and metaphorically. Their approval of the hero's actions determines whether or not the hero succeeds in saving others. In real life, both women and men are heroes, and both genders can be toxic and blustery and arrogant. Actual men can live in perfect harmony with Mother Nature, and actual women can be guilty of hubris and domineering. These are movies, though. They talk in metaphors. The metaphor of Mother Earth is by default female, so the metaphor of her nemesis is then male. But it's not really about gender. It's about balance. And in fact, the films are working very hard to reach out to male characters, to show them that they really aren't the opposite, or the nemesis, or the bad guy at all. How do they reach out to these male characters, and ultimately to the audience? They put the potential hero in a situation where he has to overcome obstacles by learning about that balance. The main male characters start out in a broken or struggling relationship with someone important to them. Repairing that relationship goes hand-in-hand hand with surviving the disaster. The heroes and the audience are shown how easy it is to knock over a skyscraper, or a dam, or the entire state of California. Watching Las Vegas, that shining hub of phallic everything, fall into a crack in the earth is a compelling argument for not taking our little feats of engineering so seriously. Daniel's skyscrapers fall down right after he abandons someone in a parking garage? Noted. He's then crushed horribly? Double noted. We also see that the heroes don't have to do everything alone, or know everything already. In fact, their heroics are often a result of receiving instruction from others who know more. The heroes are surrounded by both mother and father figures who guide, teach, help, and demonstrate preferred behavior. Sometimes these figures might even sacrifice themselves for the sake of the hero and the success of his mission. We discussed these themes at length in the other two episodes of this series, but we haven't looked much at the conventions, the ways the themes are presented to the audience, and which are specifically part of a disaster film's storytelling. We'll start with a couple of ways disaster films challenge traditional Western thinking about heroism, redemption, and success. The most obvious way is by setting up Mother Nature, Mother Earth, Mother Goddess, the Feminine Divine, etc., as the deity. In some cases, it's explicit, like Max in Armageddon referring to his god as she. And sometimes it's implied, through imagery such as Mrs. Rosen's mother goddess appearance, by women being the assessors and observers, and frankly by the entire premise of disaster film. Mother Nature is about to decide your fate. We also see a nod toward fertility, 
balancing new life against the disaster. There are almost always main character children in the film, and often groups of random children who become part of the motivation for the hero's efforts. There's usually a renewed or burgeoning romantic relationship among people who already are or who can become biological parents. There's the occasional wedding of people who seem like they have the energy to raise the next generation. And in Deep Impact, we follow not one but two women who are pregnant throughout the movie. Their pregnancies track the timeline of the events of the film and are a direct nod to fertility. More than that, though, they're a nod to the positive apocalypse vibe of disaster movies. The current world is being destroyed, but a new and better world is being born. The importance of collaboration over arbitrary social hierarchy is highlighted by the cutting off of communication. It's restored only after the heroes have demonstrated their ability to cooperate, think things through, and put others first. Cell phones? never work. Regular phones? They work in modern disaster films as a symbol of, quote, ancient knowledge whose use the hero must earn by going on a mini-quest. But they usually don't work in classic disaster films, where they would have been the primary method of communication. Radios are often unreliable. Do the people need information from their leaders? Well, they can't have it, because that would cause a panic. I suppose in real life, preventing panic isn't the worst reason for leaders not to share information, but these are movies, stories. And the metaphor in these stories is that communication won't just be given to you. You have to earn it. You have to go on a quest for it. You have to show that you deserve it and will do good things with it. We saw in Armageddon how Watts magically makes NASA reappear once Harry and Willie choose hope over ego but this required them to lose contact with NASA in the first place. They also lose contact with the other shuttle, and don't regain it until the men on the other shuttle decide to work with the terrain instead of trying to conquer it. When they throw caution to the winds and risk their safety just to reconnect with the first shuttle, suddenly all the things that were going wrong go right. In Independence Day, they return to the telegraph to communicate with people around the world. The telegraph is no longer supported technologically. I guess the powers that be never watched Independence Day? But it was supported at the time the film was made. So why did it take them half the movie to remember Morse code was a thing? Because they needed to be doing it for the sake of the whole world. Even before the president's moving speech about solidarity, the survivors had realized we can't see ourselves only as members of an ethnic group or a country. We need to see ourselves as human beings, defending a world we all share. There's a tiny little moment, too, in 2012, when everyone is panicking and talking over each other, trying to escape the crashing airplane, and all of their talking and shouting and panicking, although it may sound like communication, is really just making it impossible to understand each other. Then Yuri makes everyone be quiet, and in the silence, he tells the voice-activated car to start. And just like that, everyone now has a way to escape the crashing plane. What I'm getting at here is that communication isn't just words. It's the ability to convey information to someone, for their benefit or ours or both. 
In these movies, you get the information you need when you've learned the value of hearing another person. The heroic journey in disaster film is in one way very typical. It's that Joseph Campbell type journey where the hero faces death, encounters helpers on the way, and brings back important wisdom from their brush with death. But in other ways, our hero is on a slightly different journey. Or perhaps it's just that the wisdom given isn't quite what we expected. As in other genres, our heroes are rewarded for taking action, but some of them need to be heroic or make sacrifices as a way to make up for an earlier imbalance or mistake. Dante's Peaks Ruth, for instance, has been at odds with her daughter-in-law Rachel throughout the film, and by implication for years before. Ruth's son ran out on Rachel and their kids long ago, but Ruth doesn't acknowledge how wrong it was of him to do that until she's literally dying on the side of the mountain. I mean the burgeoning volcano. Why is she dying? She's dying because as she and Rachel and Harry and the kids are crossing the now acidic lake, the water begins to eat through the metal of the boat. Ruth realizes they're not going to make it to the other shore at the rate they're going, so she jumps into the water and manually pulls the boat to safety. The acid burns her beyond rescue, and even though they try to carry her down the mountain, she doesn't make it. She tells Rachel she knows her son was a fool to leave his family, and she dies having sacrificed herself for her grandchildren. In this way, metaphorically, she heals the rift with Rachel and makes up for what her son did. But on the other side of it, Ruth wasn't going to leave her mountain home. She didn't believe the volcano would erupt. The lava destroyed Ruth's house so abruptly that she wouldn't have had time to escape. Rachel had saved Ruth, so that Ruth could redeem herself by saving them in return. Why would Ruth have to redeem herself? It was her son that had done the bad thing, not her. She had been an amazing grandma the whole time, and the kids loved her, and she loved them. So what exactly is her crime? Remember, this is a movie, not real life. It isn't that Ruth the character did anything wrong. It's that Ruth as a woman and a mother is a representative of Mother Earth, or at least she should be. By sparring with Rachel, she's standing figuratively on the side of that phallocentric big dick energy, the side her son chose. It isn't Ruth the character being punished for anything. It's Ruth the representative being given the chance to rebalance the disharmony her son caused and a sacrifice for her family, for which she'll be given hero status. Her death is sad for her family because they love her, but it's really a sign that Ruth has set something right, and her hero status is a reward. Harry Dalton, Dante's Peak's heroic volcanologist, is also setting something right. He's just met Rachel and her kids, but as might be expected, he falls in love with Rachel, and he knows that means he'd better love her kids, too. They're a package deal, and they all deserve the best of him. It never occurs to him to leave her or the kids behind, or Ruth either, for that matter, even though she's fighting them about evacuating. When they realize the kids have taken a car, the little guy's legs are barely long enough to reach the pedals, and driven up the mountain through an ash cloud to get their stubborn grandma, Harry doesn't think twice about going with Rachel to get them, 
even though it might very well be a suicide mission. When everything goes pear-shaped, he doesn't run off. He risks his life and endures great hardship to keep the family safe. He's a symbol, not just of how to be a good person, but specifically of how to be a better kind of man, one who's willing to drive headlong into the earth, into the abandoned mine shafts, rather than running away from the people who had trusted him, as the kid's father had done. Does setting up Mother Earth as the deity mean that disaster films are anti-religion? Not at all. From Volcano's stand carrying the conductor through the melting train and praying with all his heart to the Virgin Mary, to Grace Stamper looking like Mary or a Christian angel in her father's dying vision, to world leaders in 2012 choosing to stay with their citizenry and trust in prayer, and Julius Levinson in Independence Day creating a prayer circle in the bunker. Disaster film characters are open about their religions, their faith, and their practice of it. No religion is criticized, and if a spiritual icon is destroyed, such as 2012's toppling of the statue of Jesus in Rio de Janeiro, it's seen as an affront, or as a symbol of the toppling of man's structures. Basically, the church building may crumble, but the faith of the people remains. These films do, however, invite us to think in more expansive ways about religion. As I said, all religions are presented as equal, but because the biggest character in disaster movies is Mother Nature, there is a lot of naturalism and references to the naturalistic part of religions such as Christianity. A strong example of this can be found in the path of Reverend Scott in 1972's Poseidon Adventure. A quick reminder, this analysis is about the story not about actual belief or faith or any opinion about any religion. It's just a look at what the story is saying about the character's professed religion. On one hand, we have Reverend Scott's ordinary story arc. He learns how to be a hero. He resolves his crisis of faith because of the sacrifice and guidance of a mother figure. And he ultimately chooses to face death in order to save other people. Joseph Campbell would see this as a typical hero's journey no particular surprises. But on the other hand, we have an alternate view of Christianity in this film, not just because Reverend Scott is questioning his faith, but also because his path back to faith isn't quite a parallel with Jesus. In more than one religion, we find the notion of as above, so below, as God wills it in heaven, so it is on earth. In Christianity, in particular the Protestantism that Reverend Scott is a reverend in, Jesus Christ is the Redeemer, the one who sacrificed himself to wash away the sins of the whole world and to open the door to human redemption through his death and ascension to heaven. Christ's sacrifice came on the heels of his temptation in the desert, where the devil tried and failed to woo him from his true heavenly Father. So what does Poseidon Adventure do with this? It tells a similar story, through Reverend Scott, but it basically turns it on its head, just as the Poseidon itself is literally flipped upside down in the water. Let's walk through all the imagery and metaphor together. Reverend Scott delivers a homily for the passengers on the Poseidon. He talks about how important it is for humans to take control of their own lives, and not just wait for God to answer random prayers. 
He's questioning both his beliefs and his role as God's messenger, so his homily seems a bit cranky. An enormous swell of water turns the ship upside down. Not being used to such behavior, the ship starts flooding and breaking apart at the seams. Robin, one of the children on the ship, remembers that the crewman giving them a tour earlier had said the propeller area was the thinnest part of the hull. So a group of survivors head for the propeller, heading up instead of down, because the ship is upside down, so down is up and, well, you probably understand how upside down works. Reverend Scott establishes himself as the leader of the group with ambivalent support. The mother goddess-shaped passenger, Mrs. Rosen, who we discussed more closely in the mother's episode, sacrifices her life to save the reverend from drowning and gives him the wisdom he's earned by facing death. She tells him life always matters very much. Toward the end of their journey, the survivors encounter an obstacle. The final door, to salvation if you will, is blocked by steam, and the wheel that closes the valve is way out over an expanse, at the bottom of which is fire and pointy objects to die on. Another female passenger, Linda, is killed, and her husband is understandably upset, blaming it all on Reverend Scott, even though really Reverend Scott hadn't done anything to endanger her, other than asking the group to follow him. Still, even though he's innocent here, Reverend Scott takes it to heart that another person has died on his watch, and he gets very angry at God. He starts yelling at God, and then he jumps out to the wheel, hanging from it with hands that are burning from the heated metal. He shuts off the steam, allowing people to go through the last door, and then he falls to his own death. So what are we looking at here? We're looking at a reverend whose only motive for preaching is because he thinks he should guide people, but he doesn't even know if he believes his own words. Not quite a parallel of Jesus, who believed so deeply in his own message that others were able to believe it too. While in Christianity the typical mode of belief is that people who follow Jesus will be saved, Reverend Scott's claim to leadership and most of his decisions are questioned all the time. In the Christian Bible, Jesus advises, Let the children come unto me. But for Reverend Scott, it's a child who leads him, a child who knows more about the Poseidon than he does. Some interpretations of Christian doctrine suggest that Jesus' sacrifice constitutes a metaphysical salvation of the faithful. But while the Reverend does sacrifice himself for the sake of other humans, he's not saving their souls, but rather their physical existence. Jesus guides others, while Reverend Scott is himself led by little Robin and by Mrs. Rosen, who are both symbolic of Mother Nature, Robin in name and Mrs. Rosen as more of an avatar. Where Jesus is tempted by the devil yet never wavers, Reverend Scott is tempted by no one at any time. His faith started out wavering, and his final act is prefaced by anger and literal shouting at his God. Yet in the end, Reverend Scott's sacrifice does allow the successful completion of his mission. The people who accompanied him are saved by finally climbing up to the bottom of the ship, a really literal parallel of as above, so below. The Jesus figure, the character associated in action and imagery with Jesus or Christian doctrine, comes up in a lot of movies across a lot of genres. But in the Poseidon adventure, 
even though the comparison is there, Reverend Scott is almost, well, an upside-down symbol of the Christ he struggled to preach about. The typical Christian message has been altered to include naturalism and the feminine divine, and even though the movie says nothing negative about Christianity or Judaism, the path to the character's salvation comes from an entirely different direction. Even the notion of baptism is turned on its head here. While baptism in Christianity is associated with being dry and then doused with or in water, the survivors of the Poseidon are ushered back into the world by getting out of the water. Like I said earlier, disaster films aren't against any religion or faith or group of people, but they do lean strongly toward the feminine divine and to Mother Nature making all the decisions. So while the Poseidon narrative doesn't criticize Christianity or faith, it does take Reverend Scott on a path very different from that of Jesus, but still one of success, heroic status, and personal redemption. We can see, then, how the hero in a disaster film isn't always quite the same as in other genres, even other action genres, where the heroes might have to risk their lives, but typically get to live through the peril. Disaster film is much more willing to kill the main characters, and is more focused on the why than on the what. Mother Earth wants to know how the hero has improved on the inside. She wants to know that he's got his heart and his head on straight, that he deserves hero status. She wants to know that his top priorities are children, family in general, and viewing all of humanity as a ginormous family worth dying for. This brings us to something that is not a priority for disaster movies, the science. Disaster film, like any other action film, sci-fi film, or frankly almost any film that isn't a well-researched documentary, does not concern itself with the scientific accuracy surrounding the disaster or the practical handling of the disaster. Is the crustal displacement in 2012 possible? It is a genuine theory with a good bit of evidence for it, is the way it plays out in 2012 the way it would play out? I highly, very, very highly doubt it. Does that matter? Not when you consider the themes of these movies. The disaster, whatever it is, is just a vehicle for Mother Nature to bring the character's attention to what's really important. And the science is just a way to highlight which characters know how to listen and which characters don't. Almost always, the scientist or expert in a disaster movie is not believed, or their input is dismissed as irrelevant. Jack Hall in The Day After Tomorrow addresses the U.S. administration, only to be reminded that the administration doesn't have time to deal with all this now, and that his prediction sounds far-fetched. Harry Dalton's warnings about Dante's Peak aren't taken seriously by the guy who hired him in the first place. Volcano Stan doesn't believe there's lava under L.A. until he's walking through it. No one listens to Fire Chief O'Halloran in the Towering Inferno, even though as Fire Chief he probably knows a little bit about fires. David Levinson can't even get a phone call into the president without asking for help from his ex-wife, despite his excellent credentials. And even when the experts are believed, their recommendations aren't followed which oversight costs precious time and even lives. Consider for a moment that in Independence Day, 
a movie about an alien invasion. They poke fun twice at people who believe in aliens, at Julius Levinson, who brings up the crash at Roswell, and at Russell Case, who explains that he had once been abducted by aliens. So it doesn't really matter if the science behind the disaster is real or pretend, because the people who know how to escape it or mitigate it or even prevent it are uniformly ignored. Of course, the characters who don't listen and who ignore the instructions always pay dearly for their inattention and arrogance, so there's that. What's the purpose of this convention, this need for the main characters to be ignored? It's a way to sort out who's listening to the Earth, which characters and institutions are worthy, basically, and which ones are part of the problem. And the problem isn't whatever the disaster is. It's not the volcano, or the flood, or the fire, or the aliens. It's those priorities. The ones about children, and family, and life. It's about living in harmony with Earth, and with our fellow humans. This is the reasoning behind another of Disaster Film's conventions, the obliteration of iconic structures. Most Disaster Films use this convention, cheerfully destroying the White House, the Statue of Liberty, the Louvre, the skyline of every familiar city, the London Eye, the Kremlin, St. Peter's Basilica, the Hoover Dam, Yellowstone, Las Vegas, places that most people, even if they can't put a name to them, recognize. There are a couple of reasons for this, actually. One is for the coolness factor, of course. If Michael Bay or Jerry Bruckheimer haven't blown something up in a spectacular fashion, then what are they even doing? Sometimes some films may be making a comment on the institution connected to the building, organized religion, government, capitalism, things like that, that the movie may be trying to attack a little bit. But mostly it's just to have a recognizable thing that's been destroyed, a way to showcase the awesome power of nature and occasionally advanced aliens. The other reason, though, gets back to that priority about connecting with humanity. When we see the White House or Las Vegas or the Eiffel Tower, we're sharing that moment of recognition with everyone else who's watching the movie. No matter where they're watching, or if we would get along with them in real life, or if they have anything in common with us at all. When we see the familiar icon crumble, we're all having the same experience. It doesn't matter if we care about the building or the statue, or if we agree with the institutions connected to it. We all recognize the thing, so we're having the same thoughts at the same time. We're having a communal experience, even if we don't realize it. There's this, too. When something we recognize gets destroyed, it feels more real to us. It feels more like something that could actually happen. Because it's not some anonymous, made-up place, it's a real place, one that a lot of us have maybe been to, one that we associate with feelings and memories that we now transfer to the rest of the events in the film. In this way, disaster films break the fourth wall, not by looking out at the audience, but by bringing the audience into the film. This is also done through the use of reflections in the film and in the positioning of the characters. In Dante's Peak, for example, we see Rachel looking out the car window at the volcano erupting behind them. We see her reflection on the window glass, 
the way we would see our own reflection if we were sitting in the car, staring out at the volcano that's chasing us. Harry Dalton watches the volcano in the rearview mirror of the truck, so we're watching it in the mirror too, which means the volcano is behind us the way it's behind the truck. In War of the Worlds, Ray Ferrier is watching in horror as the aliens start vaporizing everyone. He's standing with his back to us, so we feel as though we're standing alongside him instead of across from him or away from him. That means the aliens coming for him are coming for us, too. And then we have the journalists, newscasters, people in the movie reporting on whatever the disaster is. Often they're played by actual newscasters, so they're recognizable as people who tell us news about real events. This encourages us to feel that their reports in the film are also real, or that the news is also a movie production, but perhaps that's a topic for a different day. Even when the newscasters are just actors playing journalists, the main characters are watching the news on TV, which means we're watching the news on their TV. So again, we're pulled into the action of the movie, as though it were happening to us instead of to strangers on a screen. Breaking the fourth wall to draw the audience in speaks directly to the top priorities. The main theme of disaster movies is connection to the earth, to family, and to humanity. Connecting with others in a theater audience reminds us that as humans, we're always having a communal human experience with everyone else on the planet. We're all living in the same world, with the same White House and the same Eiffel Tower and the same vulnerability. We're all at the mercy of Mother Nature. Once we're drawn in, fully integrated into the story, then all of the themes and messages can speak to us as well as to the characters. All the guidance and warnings are for us to use. You may be thinking, okay, so the movies are trying to tell us something. That's true of a lot of movies. In fact, if a story isn't telling us anything, then it's not really a story. What's so special about disaster films that the audience needs to hear the message and bring it with us into our actual lives? In the Father's episode of this series, we talked about Kadeem, a young man in daylight who had never been taught how to interact with society, how to be a good person or a good man, how to deal with his feelings or seek harmony or balance. He had been given models of posturing and violence and control and only knew that there were scary things, like weakness, that he needed to avoid. His only guidance had been that a man makes things happen. He has control over others, and should lash out physically if he's challenged. In that episode, I suggested that even though Kadim is responsible for his own actions, maybe the guides and the heroes would say they were responsible too, for not teaching Kadim a better way for not helping him be responsible for his actions, for not showing him how grown-ups should act or why. But if we, the audience, are supposed to see ourselves as part of the narrative, and the messages are for us as much as for the main characters, then the human society that let Kadim down is our human society. We're the ones letting down all the real Kadims, who want so badly to matter in a world that doesn't support them. We expect them to be, quote, good, but we don't help them understand what that looks like. 
In disaster movies, Mother Nature shows in dramatic detail what being good looks like, what success looks like, what men can be, what people can be when they work together and are balanced and brave. These lessons are for the audience to absorb. The heroes may be the ones acting on the instruction, but we're the ones who need to take it with us, so that the hero's success can be ours too, and so that we can be there for Kadim. So let's recap. If someone were to ask me what makes a disaster film a disaster film, I would say, first you need a disaster. The believability of the disaster is irrelevant, but having really good effects is definitely desirable. Then you need a guy. Someone who's having trouble with someone in his life. A partner or former partner. A kid. People from his past who remind him he's made mistakes. Maybe instead of one guy, it's a group of guys, all hoping to be heroes. If the guy or guys learn what they're supposed to learn and become who they're supposed to be, then most of these troubles with the someone will be resolved. Throw in a few guides, men and women, maybe older, maybe not, who either help the hero with practical things, like teaching him how to use his thruster pack, or show him the correct path. They might show him by pointing, so to speak, like Julius Levinson saying, Get up, David, you'll catch a cold, and thereby giving David the idea he needed about viruses. Or by direct advice, like Yuri telling Jackson that if someone wants to beat you, he has to kill you. Or by example, like Russell Case sacrificing himself so that other pilots would know what needed to be done. The women in the film don't do a lot of heavy lifting in the action-adventure sense. They're scientists, mayors, city planners, doctors, advisors to the U.S. president, award-winning journalists, swimming champions, astronauts, hotel managers. Or they're just people, which is certainly enough. But they don't act unless they're the only ones around to save themselves or to protect the helpless. Their primary role is to observe to assess, to approve or disapprove of the potential hero's actions and choices. As women, they represent the feminine divine, the Earth Mother. They're avatars, basically, of Mother Nature, who's about to be the only thing anyone is dealing with. There are a few cautionary tales, men who strut and bluster and buy things and ignore people, men who will likely be eaten by the disaster, but even if they live, they'll be vilified. Then all those things they built that mattered more to them than human beings? They'll all be knocked down. There are also characters like Kadim, young people, usually young men, who illustrate what happens when society doesn't honor its responsibility to its children. We'll see representatives of other, people considered to be on the fringe of society, like the homeless man in Day After Tomorrow, or Charlie in 2012. These fringe folk are a source of wisdom for those who bother to listen. The homeless man knows about infection and how to stay warm in the cold, while Charlie, with his zany conspiracy theories, is the one who understands about crustal displacement. Why does this wisdom come from fringe folk? Partly because the wisdom is about something the main characters have never dealt with before. The situation itself is a fringe sort of thing and partly because learning from these often invisible members of society 
is a sign of the main character's inner growth. Life and death in disaster films aren't associated with good or evil. The character and intentions of the heroes will determine if they're worthy of heroic status. If they've done everything for the right reasons, their missions will succeed. Their lives or deaths are incidental. All religions are welcome, and all people, from everywhere in the world. But all of the imagery revolves around the feminine divine and Mother Earth, with the, quote, villains being symbolized by phallocentric skylines and posturing money men, who will always get their comeuppance. We'll have fourth wall breaks, like seeing the characters in reflections, or watching newscasters describe the disaster or having heroes who model preferred behavior for just the audience to see. This is because the message of disaster film is specifically for the audience. It's not a passive message about what might be nice or a comment on human nature. It's a direct message of preferred actions, motives, and priorities that constitute not just human goodness, but the only way to avoid the real disaster of humanity destroying itself from within. There are loads of children in disaster films, and when we lose them, it's either to access our compassion or because their deaths are part of a significant lesson. For instance, in Armageddon, we see children and their families hanging out in Shanghai before the meteor destroys most of the city. We don't know these children, but associating their little faces with the destruction of the city helps us engage rather than detach, to see the humanity rather than just the cool explosions. We lose the little Delgado girl in 2012 because her death illustrates how wrong her grandpa Tony was to turn away from his son's family. Tony isn't the worst guy in the world, and he does come to his senses and reach out, but it's too late. The lesson here is that we should come to our senses now. We have to reach out now. We have to love now, because fate won't wait. Usually, though, children are pretty safe from the disaster. They're Mother Earth's favorite people, after all, and most of her instruction is about protecting them at all costs. If the children are main characters, they're virtually guaranteed to survive. Interestingly, though, as beloved as little children are, by Mother Earth, by the grown-ups in the film, by most of the people in the audience, the truly favored class in a disaster film is dogs than the occasional cat. If there's a pet at the beginning, that pet will be there at the end. Boomer jumping into the concrete stairwell in Independence Day while behind him the aliens are blowing up the city? It's pretty poor CGI, frankly, especially compared to the rest of the film's effects, which are incredible. But we don't even care. We're just glad Boomer's okay. Lizette's cat is okay. The dogs don't die, okay? The dogs don't die. And that's really the whole theme and message of disaster film. Don't be a dick. Don't be afraid. Everyone dies, but life always matters very much. The point is to build the kind of world, and to be the kind of people, who deserve the dog. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. 
If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.